0: Hello and welcome to another College of Optometrists podcast with me, Martin Cordoner, Head of Research at the College. And me, Daniel Hardiman-McCartney, Clinical Advisor at the College. So Daniel, I can see your face. I mean, your, your real actual face, not on a screen. We're in the same building at the same time. I know a lot of people in the world have done this by now. This is our
1: first time. How are you? It is. Over two years, Martin, it's been since we've last had a live podcast from College Optom HQ, Central London.
0: And we've moved, like, the building has changed, the room has changed, it's all changed. I've changed, you've changed. We are, we are different people. We are different, but we're still here, we're still presenting whether people would wish it or not. (laughs) Something like that. Well, just to clarify, we are not welcoming your feedback on that particular issue. Uh, So it's not just one, but two shows uh, we've lined up for you this month. The latest issue of the college's research journal, OPO, is celebrating the work of college PhD scholars. So we thought we should celebrate as well. So we spoke to Drs. Kezia Latham and Jay McNaughton of Anglia Ruskin University about using comfortable print size for low vision assessment. Listening is an estimate of low vision reading parameters and, as we are celebrating the contribution those scholars have made to clinical developments over the past four decades, what it was like for Kezia and Jane to work together as supervisor and student. And to truly celebrate the many great papers in the issue, we have a second podcast coming out very soon with two more authors telling us about their research.
1: That podcast will feature Paddy Dunn, Principal Optometrist for Education and Training at Manchester Royal Eye Hospital. Telling me about his research into optometrist scope of practice in the hospitalised service. And also I'll be speaking to Emily Charlesworth, clinical research optometrist at the University of Bradford. She's been investigating target refraction and advice provided to cataract surgery patients by both optometrists and ophthalmologists in the UK. While talking to Paddy, it was very interesting to learn the connection between scope of practice, something really on the forefront of lots of clinicians' minds at the moment following the pandemic, and how it relates from both the research aspect in terms of what's happening at the hospitals that he surveyed, but also how that will affect the college policy work in terms of advanced scope of practice following the pandemic. Very interesting. Emily's work is also interesting because... Her research is saying that actually optometrists can do as good a job as ophthalmologists in having a consent conversation, information conversation, as early a point as possible. But the spoiler is, will commissioners provide the funding for optometrists to be paid to do that? We haven't had a
0: cliffhanger before. That's great. Lovely stuff. So if you enjoy these chats, then why not check out these and many other fascinating papers, past, present, but sadly not yet future, uh, from all of our journals and all free to all members via the college website. So Daniel, Patrick Gunn seems to be universally known as Paddy and didn't mind us doing the same. So this brings me to nicknames. Have you had nicknames, Daniel? I have had nicknames,
1: Martin. Would you like to share any of them? so, 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 So Dan? Yes. Dan the man? Yep. Danny? Dan... And something that I can't say. <laughs> and there's another cliffhanger. I can't believe this. I wonder about you, Martin. Any well, names?
0: yes, there was a time at university when indeed still were some friends where basically any M name, C name goes. So Marlon Cortina, Mitch Castanero, Manuel Heffetha, uh, with a C. Um, all, they're all on the table. And you can, you know, you can have anything. Uh, Mitchos Constantinopoulos. It's, it's fine. I will answer to them all.
1: And in terms of your initials being MC, is there any connection between that and your love of radio? Oh, if only, Daniel.
0: If only. Not quite. Uh, But Marlon still works as a pseudonym for strictly, I must clarify, legal purposes. Anyway, enough of this. Let's get to our chat with Kezia, Kez
1: and Jane. Good morning. So today we're joined by Kez and Jane. How are you both? Very
2: good thank you Daniel. Yeah fine thank you Daniel.
1: And of course Martin as well. Hi there. So thank you for spending some time to talk to us about your your recent research paper and if we jump straight into it can you tell us why you look to investigate comfortable print size?
3: Yeah well reading is a really crucial task particularly for people with low vision it's the task that they most commonly express difficulty with So it is really important for us as optometrists, seeing as we measure vision, uh, to be able to assess reading function effectively. And by that, I mean not just um, considering reading acuity, the smallest size that we can read, but going beyond that. Now, there are methods available for assessing reading function above threshold. Um, but they're not really that straightforward to use in the clinic. So I've been using comfortable print size, getting the patient's perception of what's comfortable to read as one way of a bit of a shortcut in low vision practice, but I didn't actually know whether that was a reasonable thing to do. So I wanted to investigate whether this was a sensible approach that matched the more standard um, measures. And actually the opportunity to test this came up as part of Jane's PhD project, which was funded by the college. Um, she was assessing reading function in the standard ways as part of her assessment with um, low vision patients entering rehabilitation. And we were able to drop in just a simple question about what they perceived their comfortable print size to be into her protocol. And that allowed us to look at this comparison between the two methods.
1: And so what was the gold standard that you tested against for our listeners?
3: Okay, so the gold standard is called the critical print size. Um, And it's a very practical measure um, because it's reflecting that uh, relationship between print size and reading speed. If I can just try and draw a sort of a a audio graph for you, Um, if you plot reading speed on the y-axis of a graph and print size on the x-axis. Then if you're dealing with relatively big print sizes, um, then reading speed bumbles along at a sort of maximum reading speed and t- uh, that isn't constrained by print size until you get to a certain point. And then print size is small enough that it starts to interfere. Reading speed starts to drop and it carries on until you get to the smallest size that you can read the reading acuity. But that knee point in the graph where print starts to become dependent, uh, reading speed starts to become dependent on the print size, that's called the critical critical print size. So the value of that point on on the reading curve, if you like, is that it's the smallest print that you can read at maximum speed. So it's where you want to aim for in a low vision assessment, potentially with magnification, for sustained or fluent reading tasks, because you don't want to be reading for any sort of duration, um, a print size that's only just readable. It it needs to be bigger around around this critical print size. Um, But to measure that with standard methods, you need to time somebody's reading speed over a whole range of print sizes, and then determine which of those is the critical print size. And that takes time to do in a standardized
2: way. From a practice level, the critical print size is undoubtedly really important as a measure when prescribing magnification to our patients, as Kez says, but as it is time consuming, not all of us who who offer low vision uh, solutions may have that available chair time, let alone those specialist charts that we need to determine that critical print size. So by simply asking people, which is the smallest print size that is comfortable for them to read is a rather attractive alternative. And it also changes our focus from measuring the clinical to working more with the functional and what is also really useful is that our patients actually understand what we mean by comfortable or what is comfortable for them to read and it avoids the need for them to continue reading right to the limit of their ability which for some people with a visual impairment can be really difficult to achieve both emotionally and practically.
1: And so to our listeners many of whom are based in primary care how useful really is the the concept of acuity reserve
2: really useful. And it's the basis upon how we find our starting point when prescribing magnification. So going back to Kez's comments about the fact that we don't want to be reading right on the limit of our vision, our reading acuity, This might be okay just for a moment, but we would not be able to sustain that for any length of time, and certainly not for fluent reading. So we need a buffer. Uh, We need some acuity in reserve. So if we make the print bigger around our critical print size rather than the limit of our vision, then we have that buffer. Uh, The acuity reserved for fluent reading is often taken as a two to one ratio, which in practical terms, this means that if you double someone's reading acuity, you get a print size that will reflect the critical print size. So as an example, if someone has a reading acuity of N4, which would be the smallest they could get to on your reading a chart, then you could predict that they should be able to read N8 at their maximum reading speed. Or looking at it another way, if a patient wants to be able to fluently reading a task, such as a newspaper of size N8, then they ideally need to be able to read N4 to then be able to come back to read that N8 at their maximum reading speed. And I think what's important in all of this though is that this acuity reserve of two to one that we all use is actually just an average value. And several studies have shown that individuals can vary quite significantly in their acuity reserves so this individualized approach by asking the patient to report their own comfortable reading speed is an attractive alternative and the calculations are therefore driven by the patient.
1: And so based on this research what would be your top take-home messages or clinical pearls for our listeners?
2: Well If you have a logarithmic progression reading chart, such as a Bailey Lovey Word reading chart or the Read charts or a Radnor, that's great. But if all you have is an endpoint reading chart, such as our Faculty of Ophthalmologists, Times New Roman, then it's fine to use that. Then ask your patient, wearing their comfortable reading ad, what is the smallest print that they can find comfortable to read The size they identify is what you would then want to aim for to achieve that sustained or fluid reading task. Then the other piece of information you now need is what size of print that they want to read. What are they aiming for? So as a guide, newsprint is generally taken to be around N8. So in practice, I find it useful to have a range of practical sort of reading materials, some sample reading materials on hand or uh, if there's anything specific for the patient to bring bring that actually into the examination. Uh, And then once we know what that size of print is they're aiming for, we divide that comfortable print size they've just identified by that required print size of their book, say, and that's the magnification they will need to achieve that sustained reading. Uh, So as an example, if the comfy print size was identified as N16, and they wanted to read newspaper print of N8, then the magnification they need to achieve this would be the N16 divided by N8, which is two times magnification. So there, I would then reach for a device with this level of magnification as my starting point and take it from there.
3: And actually I'd go a bit further than that um, in that this concept isn't just useful in the low vision assessment, but perhaps even in the eye examination more generally. It's pretty common to ask someone what the smallest print they can read is, and the response that you get back is, Well, I can see this one, but I wouldn't want to read it for a long time. Um, And at that point, you can use this concept of comfy print and ask them what the smallest print is that they could read for a long time, and then compare that to the print sizes that they want to read. And you may well have patients who have slightly reduced vision, maybe you're waiting to be able to refer them for a cataract to be done or what have you, uh, where the comfy print size might be N8 or bigger than N8, um, and the patient might benefit from a little bit of magnification for sustained tasks with standard size print, even though they can see N5. Or on the other hand, you might have patients whose vision isn't necessarily impaired as such, but they've got tasks that require quite fine vision. Maybe they're doing some form of craft or very sort of small painting or that kind of thing. And this technique of comfy print can help us identify whether their vision is sufficient for that or whether we might want to um, look at something like an intervention like a slightly higher add or a low powered magnifier just to make their sustained um, reading size um, equivalent to the comfy print. In another paper,
1: you consider listening as a helpful estimate.
3: Can you tell us more about that? What does that mean? Okay, well, comfy print size does seem like it might be useful, but it's something where we're asking the patient to specify a size. And it's only telling us about size and not anything about reading speed. And patients with low vision often have a reduced maximum reading speed, even with um, big, big size print. And that's down to factors like having a central scotoma, having to use their peripheral vision for for reading. So by listening to a patient reading down a chart of print sizes, that not only gives us an estimate of critical print size by hearing where they start to slow down, but it can also give us a judgment of whether their reading fluency is likely to allow them to read comfortably. So if somebody can read fairly Um, fluently without hesitation on big prints, you can say, okay, if I can make the print that big with magnification, then they're going to be able to fluently read um, with a magnifier. But if with a big print, somebody's hesitating over their, um, their reading, even with a big print, then we can judge whether it might be more sensible to proceed with something like sensory substitution, things like audio books, because however big we make the print, their reading speed's still not going to allow them to read fluently.
1: Hello, Dr. Paranup Singh Bilku here. I'm one of the College of Optometrists clinical advisors. Did you know the college members can email me or phone me or one of our other expert clinical advisors for an objective, informed advice on a range of situations and issues that arise in practice. For example, a patient with low vision who won't stop driving, or a colleague who is not following performing a dilated examination where clinically required. We can also talk through a decision you have made to provide feedback, or simply reassurance and advise you on the next steps. Whatever your clinical query, we're here to help. You can find out more on our website at www.college-optometrists.org forward slash advice. Right, back to the podcast. And so I guess more and more of our our, our patients, our service users are using you know, ebooks, tablets, mobile devices. Does that change the way we should practice or consider these things or with the same, same rules apply?
2: Well, technology has most certainly changed the way many of us read, including those with visual impairment. Um, But when it comes to those with sight loss, there are a few things to be aware of. Uh, The use of technology for our visually impaired children or young adults is widespread, which is not surprising because they have been introduced to smartphones, for example, like all of our children at an early age. And their ability for reading to use those devices has evolved with the use of that technology. And although maybe our older generations may be more familiar over the years with digital devices, including uh, introducing a new piece of equipment, such as a Kindle or an iPad, that they've for the first time following sight loss may prove very difficult for some, especially those devices which have a number of click throughs uh, to different levels, such as the iPad. Uh, but that said, I'd never assume, and I think for those of us who work in the sector regularly, the use of digital devices is a conversation that we have with all of our patients, uh, regardless of age. Uh, but in recent years, the quality of the more specialised digital products for those with sight loss has actually improved, and the uh, there are more affordable desktop magnifiers, uh, portable electronic visual enhancement systems that we call P-E-V-E-S, PEAVs, and now wearable electronic vision enhancement systems, or Weaves, all of which are available for all age groups.
3: I'd agree. I mean, there's, there's these increasing array of, um, of devices with, with a whole host of functionality around improving visibility through magnification. It's one of the few ways you can enhance contrast. And you've also got the aural substitution um, that, that can provide a visual alternative. And low vision practitioners are certainly starting to incorporate much more in the way of signposting or or prescribing electronic aids, although they're not available on loan through the hospital eye service and advising on phone features and that kind of thing. And certainly um, electronic devices is is very much a feature within the RNIB's new draft framework for low vision service provision. But I think one of the challenges um, for practitioners who might not do a lot of low vision work is keeping up to date because there's something new available all the time um, and it might be more practical for practitioners to offer signposting to more specialist services now there are a few sort of specific things that you might recommend um, patients phone providers can be really helpful at getting things set up in a practical way there are some um, national charities that have specific tech support lines. You've got the RNIB um, Technology for Life team, and you've also got the Macular Society Connect by Tech service that are worth mentioning. And then, of course, there will be local resources as well. Um, your local voluntary society your local ECLO, the iClinic Liaison Officer, or your rehab workers locally that you may be able to signpost your, your patients to for really up-to-date information.
1: There are Lots of really helpful resources there, and actually we're trying to do links to those next up to the podcast. I guess on a, on a very brief related note, digital exclusion, throughout the pandemic, we've been asked to use more and more services like the Access Banking, but via devices. Are we seeing more digital exclusion of the visually impaired community?
3: Yeah, I think that is an issue. I mean, we know that visual impairment affects more older people. Just um, to give you some stats, 70% of those on on the sight impaired or severely sight impaired register are 65 years or, or older. And older people are also less likely to be internet users. Um, there's some interesting Office for National Statistics, that's what I think they're interesting anyway. Um, 99% of people in the UK aged 16 to 44 years had used the internet in the past three months in 2020. But of those aged 75 or over, it was only 54%. So these older people, there is still digital exclusion and we know that visually impaired people are older. So I think it is an area um, where providing support for visually impaired people to take up using technology or to get the best from their existing technology is a really important area.
2: I agree. Uh, I've had patients mention that they still struggle um, to access their bank statements online via their desktop, for example, or to use digital banking apps on their smartphone. And I had one gentleman just recently uh, also reporting his frustrations at not being able to view his smart meter, which he'd installed to tell him how much electricity he was using on a daily basis. So, whilst this, uh, the Disability Discrimination Act is there for our patients with sight loss regarding accessibility for information, there are certainly plenty of examples where digital accessibility is still a problem.
0: I mean, I struggle to find my bank statement, so I cannot imagine how difficult it would be if you had those extra barriers. So, we have here um, Kez. Mm-hmm. And Jane and Kez supervised Jane in her PhD so because we're talking about papers which came from the uh, special issue of OPO uh, featuring the work of uh, uh, many uh, four college postgraduate scholars we um, just thought we'd get into that a little bit because obviously a lot of people who will be listening have relationships with people that they work with but the academic relationship is maybe not unique but certainly maybe a little bit different so can I just ask first of all if you felt that in working together, you had working styles that gelled or didn't. I mean, I did a, a dissertation. I remember having a meeting with my supervisor and I thought to myself, you are a lot more detail orientated than I am. Uh, and <laughs> had an impact. So I just wondered if you found such things or you found that it worked really well.
3: Um, I, I think in in the particular case of Jane and I, we've we we um, we've known each other for a fairly long time through through the low vision um through low vision circles, shall we say. I mean, we know optometry is a, is a small world and low vision is perhaps an even smaller world. So we've known each other a, a, a quite a while. And it certainly was an, an, interesting, um, an interesting process to kind of adapt to that, um, that working relationship, because we're, we're very much equal, but the sort of the, the supervisor-student relationship does put a sort of a different emphasis on things um so we've we 've definitely found our way with that, but i wouldn't have said it was a particular struggle and we've we 've definitely got different strengths and I would say yes i 'm rather more detail orientated as well, but we definitely put those put our different strengths together, and I think and it 's one of those uh, you know the sum of the parts is uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts
2: very much so I think uh, when we originally had the discussions back in the early days of of me thinking of doing a PhD and rehabilitation needs was the one area of low vision, the the sight loss sector, which I'd not really done very much work in. Uh, it just seemed to progress quite naturally to come up with the, the idea and the concept of doing this particular project. So, uh, And also I think being slightly older, shall I say, I'd hit that sort of midlife crisis and uh, I wanted to do something different. And this was, as I said, one of the areas of low vision I hadn't really done any work in. And working alongside CARES just seemed to be quite natural, to be honest, and we don't really think we had any issues. Uh, certainly there was no personality clashes there. There uh, and I think we benefited each other in some ways because I came from working in the sight loss sector for a good number of years in fact my entire career and and I think we both benefited from that uh, and I'm the one that ended up with uh, benefited the most I think with having that PhD so all thanks to Kez but no, it was, I've, I've it was fun
3: le- I, and I've absolutely learned stuff as well because uh, my um my focus has been the academic side of things. So Jane's brought a lot to me in terms of, yeah, but what about practice? What about clinic? Um, and so those, those different emphases have been, have been really helpful, I think. Can I ask Jane, were you looking for anything
0: in particular from a supervisor beforehand? Were there certain things that you thought, I'm looking for a mentor, or I'm looking for academic knowledge specifically? Um, was there anything that you thought, yes, I, this is what I want from a supervisor? And then of course, did that possibly change?
2: I wasn't really sure what I wanted, to be honest, from the actual supervisor. And I think from, if I was going out specifically looking, because I wasn't, because this this is, it was a natural progression that started off with a conversation over a coffee, literally. Uh, when I think if I was going to do that again, I think somebody like Kez would, would be somebody I'd be looking for, that she was very much um, easy to contact, easy to understand and didn't seem to mind the really stupid questions that I would come up with on a regular basis. Uh, as there was certainly, it was a very comfortable relationship. And I think when you are looking for a supervisor, that it's that, um, it's that accessibility uh, that's really important for the student to be able to be understood and to understand the other person.
0: And Kez, can I ask, have you ever been in the situation or do you, could you conceive of a situation? where you would in sort of thinking about whether you were going to supervise someone that you think maybe this just doesn't quite work or doesn't quite gel or do you think you're always able to sort of say look we can find a way we can make it work or do you think that the sort of nature of the relationship is important enough for that to be a factor? Um,
3: oh, um I've, I've never had a relationship with a, with a PhD student break down I don't think I don't think anybody I'm hoping nobody's going to come back on this and go oh well what about this this time that you know everybody's different and you do have to work slightly differently with everybody because you know everybody's individual um but there's always a I've, I've I've never found there's not been a way to make things work um and that goes for sort of, you know, and every, every student is different, every project is different, um, you know, whether that be sort of working on campus with someone or working remotely with someone as we tend to be doing more. So you just have to adapt to the specific situations, I think.
2: I think just to add to that, I think when the, we're still working together, um, so although the PhD has now concluded uh, and, uh, we are, and we still have our own research interests that we're doing independently, there's still a lot of stuff that Kess and I are still continuing to work together in the future and I, th- I think that does say something. Can I just
0: ask finally on this Jane, was there anything that surprised you um, while doing a PhD or about doing a PhD?
2: Um <laughs> the impact upon family life, possibly. Um, I went into this with my children who are a little bit older and thankfully a little bit more self-sufficient, but it is all-consuming but I don't think I really went into that without that knowledge having known several people that have done something similar I think having done it at being slightly older it did impact upon family life quite a lot and uh, uh, but I will say and I think a lot of some PhD students who might listen to this might suck through teeth I enjoyed every minute of it and uh, would I do it again yes (laughs) without a doubt.
1: Finally, can you share with us what you're both working on and, um, and what listeners should be looking out for in the research literature coming forward?
2: Well, over the last uh, few years or so, uh, we've obtained a significant amount of data regarding the rehabilitation needs, which we were we had previously mentioned for people with visual impairment. And uh, so what are those important, necessary daily goals or tasks that everyone needs to be able to do um, following sight loss? And we've published two papers in OPO regarding those rehabilitation needs, both at entry to a low vision uh, service, and then secondly, whether or not these uh, needs actually change over time. So we'll be continuing to analyse all this data and I'm particularly interested in looking at factors that impact upon a patient's acceptance or adjustment to their vision loss over time.
3: And in terms of what what I'm doing, um, we're also doing some further work on these uh, reading parameters now that we've identified, sort of provided proof of concept that they're they're potentially relatively clinically useful. We're digging into the detail around um, repeatability and validity so that we can say a bit more about, about these parameters. And I've also got another PhD project underway um, that's being done with um, Andrew Miller and Mike Crossland, um, who are both sort of low vision experts, and that's kindly being funded by the Macular Society. And we're looking at the real world benefits of these uh, wearable electronic low vision aids, which we're terming weavers.
1: (laughs) So that is Kez Latham and Jane McNaughton. Thank you both very much. Really interesting conversation.
3: Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you
1: very much to Kez and Jane for sharing their time and thoughts with us. And remember, we'll have another episode out very soon, so check that out. If you'd like to get in touch with us, or indeed Marlon or Manuel,
0: then you can do so at the email address in the show notes. You can also like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast, or you can not. No, really, that is allowed. We just don't encourage it. Bad for the digestion.
1: Thanks again for listening. Speak to you all soon.